Good evening, I'm Kevin Marsh, and this is Ideas. Stars shining, number, number one, number two, number three, good Lord. By and by, by and by, good Lord. By and by, by and by. When we see the child working at mastering number or mastering language, what we see is the process of development of number and of language. We're not seeing a child making errors. What we're seeing is the process of growth. To say the child's making errors is like saying that the acorn is a, an error for an oak tree. As I see it, the infant is born as a participant in the world. He's not a being outside of the world into which he's born, but he's born with the biological faculties to be able to participate in it and does immediately and has been. He's not born outside of the world and then has to learn an alien world. He's already, in a sense, pre-programmed to be part of that world and is part of it, even in his being born. As beings who share the structure of our world, we're driven by a powerful inner intent to discover and elaborate its language, its customs, and its natural laws. The activity of children, quite simply and gracefully, is learning. And to unfold their activities, children need nothing more than an environment which is humane, responsive, and respectful of their individuality. Tonight, in the third program in our series, The World of the Child, we examine this process of development and some of the obstacles which stand in the way of its fulfillment. Children come into the world with a desire and a need to make sense of the world around them, which is so strong that it can properly be called biological. It's as strong as the need for food. It is indeed stronger than the need for food because mothers of nursing infants have reported over and over again, I've seen it with my own eyes, that children in the act of eating or children who are extremely hungry will stop eating if something interesting happens. That's more important. The World of the Child is prepared and presented by David Cayley. When the other person starts, all right, now it's halfway through 47, you hear the sound. I hit 47 and you don't hear it, okay? Then I go in a little further and you hear it, all right? Now you can't see a movement because that's the shutter. The laboratory of Dr. William Condon at Boston University. He is demonstrating the frame-by-frame -frame analysis of sound films which has led him to the conclusion that human beings move in precise synchrony with each other's speech. Right, the black man, his hand is coming up, and when he starts the then, his head joins in. See it? Yeah. It looks in like. slow motion, like dancing. It's not a the parts of the listener's body move in time with the units of the speaker's speech. 
But even more remarkable is Condon's finding that babies do the same thing. We started studying two and three and four day old infants uh, very intensively and with adults talking to them as well as a tape recorder playing something. And the, a little infant that early begins to move in precise synchrony with an adult's speech. I think adults are aware of this. The infant doesn't know the vowels and the consonants, but he's moving in exact synchrony with them, almost as good as an adult does, uh, which means that the infant is, is well prepared for this. I've even seen it 20 minutes after birth, which suggests that the infant is even doing this in, in, in the womb, uh, maybe in the last uh, two months before birth, that the infant even in the womb is moving synchronously with the mother's speech or reverberations of speech in its world. Shared movement is an important element in human communication, and this ability of the newborn must play a significant role in the initial bonding of mother and child. It also demonstrates the remarkable adaptedness of the baby to his world. I think the infant has much, much greater capacity, much greater ability than we'd ever dreamed of, that to see a 20-minute-old infant moving in beautiful synchrony <clears throat> with the human voice, in exact synchrony perhaps with the consonants and the vowels and also with the intensity of these, indicates that the ability to follow the structure of sound is just amazing. And this is for a creature whose task is to grow up and be a speaking being and thinking being. The wonder of all of this is that the human being authentically reflects the structure and order of the universe. That since we are one with it in a way, uh, we have ability to understand its order. We put names to its order. And, and that order is, is running right through us in the very fact that we are synchronizing with its order not just in the auditory dimension. I'm sure we're, we're synchronizing with nature's structure in all of our sensory modalities, and then we're putting names to this, and then we're able to talk about the structure of the world. Somehow nature is uh, becoming mind through us, I guess. And mind, in, in that sense, is, is this uh, ability to think about structure and to understand the structure of ourselves and of the world. In the baby, dancing to the sound of the language she will one day speak, we can see the beginnings of a process of learning. Children are not taught language. They learn it by using their inborn ability to grasp its structure. Jean Piaget, the great Swiss psychologist and philosopher who pioneered the scientific observation of how children actually learn, observed the same process at work in the way children learn mathematics. Children cannot simply be taught the concept of number. They must first discover it, just as the very first mathematicians once did. Seymour Papert is a professor of mathematics and of education at MIT and a former colleague of Piaget's. Piaget sees it as a miracle, a source of wonderment that a child should make this incredible thing called number. And to understand how this miracle happens, we need to delve very deeply into the nature both of the child and of number. Uh, this is in smart contrast with the current educational uh, uh, approach that has a different, more fragmented epistemology. If you think what the child is doing is, is learning a lot of number facts, 
there isn't any miracle. There just there's just a lot of little bits and pieces the child has to pick up, facts and skills and concepts and and one by one the child picks them up and and that's all there is to it. And the hard work is on the side of the designers of the education system rather than of some profound mechanism in the child. So Piaget, this Piaget is placing himself in a in a totally different perspective from that of contemporary education. To say the child is making number is not to say the child is collecting a large number of little bits of facts about number, but there's some entity, some structure, Piaget would say, that is being fashioned by the child inside there. Now, if we see the child as fashioning this thing, the question, of course, arises, how does the child know to do it? What is it about this thing that allows itself to be fashioned by a child? And if we ask the question like that, it's not a matter anymore of teaching strategies. It's a matter of understanding very fundamentally uh, what the thing is that's being fashioned and what the child is that the child can fashion it. To ask this question is to recognize that the child is not a blank page on which teachers can inscribe knowledge. Piaget approaches the child as a philosopher and discovers a philosopher in the child. Another who does the same is John Holt, the author of How Children Learn and numerous other works on education and childhood. Children come into the world with a desire and a need to make sense of the world around them, which is so strong that it can properly be called biological. It's as strong as the need for food. It is indeed stronger than the need for food because mothers of nursing infants have reported over and over again, I've seen it with my own eyes, that children in the act of eating or children who are extremely hungry will stop eating if something interesting happens. That's more important. And everybody knows how children will fight off sleep if something interesting is going on. Their, their need to know is biological, and I say they are extraordinarily active and powerful learners. They are, in every sense of the word, scientists, that is to say. Indeed, we all are, but they do what scientists do. They observe and they speculate. They wonder, why is this this way? How does that happen? What, you know, what's the, why is it like the way it is and not some other way? They make hypotheses, theories, hunches, guesses. They test these hypotheses with observation and experiment, and sometimes just with plain questions. They do all of the things that scientists do. They do them extremely well. And nobody wants to hear it. I mean, nobody. There are handfuls of exceptions. Adults in the education game want to think that, that education and teaching is the process of pouring knowledge from full vessels into empty ones. For the child, learning is above all an active, inner-driven process. Children literally make their knowledge, first by acting on the world, then by accommodating the results of those actions into their understanding. And what is being learned cannot be separated from the process by which it is learned. Correct theory, in that famous saying of Mao Zedong's, does not fall from the sky. It is actively constructed, and what may appear to be mistakes are in fact an essential and unavoidable part of the process. This, in rough paraphrase, is the version of children's learning which is proposed by Jean Piaget. 
Piaget holds that what appear to adults as the incorrect ideas of children are in reality something much more fruitful and profound because they demonstrate the process by which knowledge itself develops. In his book Mindstorms, Seymour Papert has argued that this perspective of Piaget's is incompatible with the conventional educational practice of treating knowledge as a preformed product which can simply be transferred to children. I think in Mindstorms, I'm constantly on the edge of expressing a question about whether schools as we know them can adapt to Piagetian ideas. I think there's a profound contradiction between Piaget's concept of how learning happens and the practice in schools. You know, the, uh, the fact that in school we want the child to do it right, to get the correct answer, goes fundamentally against a respect for the child making his own mental constructions. And that's deeply rooted in school. Uh, it poses, a, I mean, clearly it poses a dilemma because it's obvious the teacher's job to uh, bring truth to the child and see if the child comes to master certain abilities, certain skills, certain concepts. And so there's a constant tension between the desire to let the child develop in an individual way, to construct it individually on the one hand, and the other hand to have this goal of bringing truth to the child. But that's a fundamental dilemma, and I think that's very deeply at the root of what we have to, how we have to rethink education. According to Piaget, children construct their ideas in distinct stages. For the baby, all learning is based directly on bodily sensations and this Piaget calls the sensory-motor stage. Then, at around 18 months, children attain the ability to represent objects symbolically. This so-called pre-operational period, during which thought is still strongly marked by emotional drives, gives way at around age 7 to concrete operations. During this period, children are still limited to manipulations of a concrete, given reality. Only after about age 11, when true formal operations appear, do they become able to go beyond the limitations of a given reality and enter the realm of the possible and the hypothetical. In general, development moves from concreteness to abstraction. At each stage, there is an increase in the scope and flexibility of mental operations and a decrease in self-centeredness. Each new stage reconstructs the earlier ones, and incorporates them as special cases, much in the way that relativity theory, say, incorporates Newton's laws of motion as a special case. Eleanor Duckworth is a Canadian who was a longtime colleague of Piaget's and is now a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Here she describes one of the so-called conservation experiments through which Piaget observed the transition to concrete operations. In the conservation experiments, two quantities of something are set up to be equal, and the child says that they're equal. Um, and then one of them is changed in some way, and the child is asked whether the equality, whether they're still equal, whether the amount has stayed the same. One simple example, you have two balls of clay, and you roll, you roll them until the child agrees that they are the same amount of clay. And then you change one of them into a sausage shape or into a pancake shape and ask if they're still the same amount of clay. And children 
it's the question of whether the amount of clay has been conserved. That's why they are called conservation experiments. So uh, children, four or five-year-olds, will tend to say, no, there's more there now because it's longer. And you can put it back into a ball and they'll say, now there's the same. But a minute ago there was more there now because it was longer. And when a child says now they are the same amount, the child is called a conserver, and that's a classic example of concrete operations. What's required there is to be able to reverse the... There are two kinds of things. To reverse the action, to realize that you can put it back the way it was before and nothing will have changed, or to compensate and to realize that it's longer now, but it's thinner now, and the, the thinness compensates for the length. And putting those into relationship with each other so that one thing can cancel out another um, is the essence of concrete operations. Each of the different stages of mental organization appears in its own time. No amount of teaching can convince the child of four that a change in shape is not a change in volume. Maturation, not teaching, is the critical factor. Eleanor Duckworth. There's a wonderful experiment to do with the, either the weight or the volume, but it's easier to do with the weight. For children who say there is the same amount of clay, but this one weighs more, this one will weigh more. Then you do it. You try it on a scale. And um, after the first time, some children will look at the scale and say, uh, yeah, it's down there a little bit more on that side. See, I told you it would weigh more. They sort of invent the data for themselves. Whereas somebody else would look at the scale and say, oh, that's right. They're equal. I can see that they're equal. Um, and even further, a child could try a different shape and and read the scale correctly and say, oh, I was wrong, that one does, they do weigh the same. I thought it would weigh more, but they weigh the same. Well, now I'll try a different shape. So he tries a different shape and tries three or four different shapes, to, and to, trying to find some shape that will confirm his deep belief that a change in shape changes the weight. Um, but the scale will still tell him that they weigh the same, no matter what shape he puts the other one into, they weigh the same. So there's that sort of accumulation of data that goes against his deep belief that it's got to weigh more if it's got a different shape. Um, but some children will be sort of defeated by the evidence. Okay, they, I don't seem to be able to make any shape that will weigh different, so they must weigh the same. I guess I was wrong. The, the shape won't change the weight. But then, as an experimenter um, in Scandinavia, Smedsland did, he, he did one last trial where he took away a little bit of weight from one of them and weighed them so that they did, it, it looked as if they did weigh differently now, contrary to the four or five uh, other trials the child had done. The children who believed that they would weigh differently then say, there, I knew that it would weigh differently. I knew all along that the shape would change the weight. And we'll go back to what they believed and disregard the four or five other uh, attempts that showed no difference in weight. Whereas children who believed already, not from data, but because they knew things would have to stay the same weight. When he did that with them, took off a little piece, they would say, hey, what's going on here? Um, what's wrong with this scale? And neither of them is believing the data. Each of them is believing their profound um, conviction about the, nature, the relationship between shape and weight. The gradual maturation of children's concepts culminates at approximately age 11, in what Piaget calls formal operations. By this, he essentially means the ability to think abstractly. Children are now able, for the first time, 
to manipulate ideas without reference to concrete reality. Jerome Kagan of Harvard believes that the discovery of formal operations will ultimately prove to have been Piaget's most distinctive contribution to developmental psychology. I think history will say that the most original idea was the idea of formal operations. And I say that because many observers of children, even lay observers, noted that there's a change around two years of age. Eskimo and Fijian mothers know that. English common law and the Catholic Church recognized there was a change around six or seven. Confession is now possible. Child was responsible for his crime. They didn't say the cognitive structures had changed. They didn't say the child was concrete operational, but they recognized the change, which was intellectual. But to my knowledge, and I'm willing to stand corrected by any listener of your program, and I read a lot, I have run across no one whoever said that at adolescence there's an important cognitive change. They said there's a hormonal change, there's a motivational change, but no one ever said that it was a, a profound cognitive change. Piaget did. I think he's right, and I think you understand some of the conflicts of adolescence if you recognize that now the child can deal with the hypothetical, that now the child worries about the consistency of his premises and beliefs, that now he's able to exhaust all the possible solution hypotheses. Therefore, if he's in trouble, he can become depressed because he can recognize, my God, there's no way out. There's nothing I can do. A five-year-old can't recognize that. That is very important and very original. It is quite impossible to do justice to Jean Piaget's work in 10 minutes. And my intention here has been simply to provide a sketch from which key ideas can be derived. Two points stand out. First, that children's ideas undergo an inner development which is relatively independent of formal instruction. And second, that although the environment must provide models, materials, and even inspiration, knowledge itself remains the active creation of the child. In short, the child's understanding develops in its own time and according to its own laws. The importance of this is that it can teach us patience, respect, and a certain humility in the face of our children. As adults, we often try to impose on children both ideas and behaviors for which they have not themselves understood the need. And often, in consequence, these socializing schemes go awry. Piaget, of course, has not provided us with a complete theory of development, nor has he claimed to have done so. He has tried, as a philosopher, to explain the origins of knowledge by examining the development of certain concepts like space, time, number, causality, and so on, from infancy to early adolescence. He has done so as a scientist, and thus has tended to value most highly the type of thinking which he himself employs, formal, abstract logic. We need therefore to ask what types of thinking he may have undervalued or overlooked. Richard Katz is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and an anthropologist who has studied Kung and Fijian society. He argues that other cultures can teach us to value different abilities than the ones which we prize most highly. I remember when I first uh, 
uh, read in Piaget and talked and heard about his emphasis on the child growing out of that kind of thinking which has been called so-called magical thinking and wondering really was the end point of development from an intellectual point of view or a cognitive point of view really becoming in the Western sense scientific that is able to make distinctions on a so-called scientific basis because that then leaves out the whole area of experience which is more intuitive more poetical really that area of experience in which the mind does not function in a logical or linear fashion but functions in another fashion and I remember thinking gee that doesn't really capture what I would see as the full potential of a human being and the interesting thing is that in many many other cultures the notion of logical linear thinking the idea of a person being empirically scientific making dichotomies making distinctions is not the most valued capacity but equally valued is the ability to merge concepts to see things as connected to think intuitively so that what we sometimes call quote primitive thinking is really not primitive it's just a different mode of thinking and I see the two as really parallel and that rather than one being the foundation for the other if we can encourage young people to keep alive the poetic and the intuitive so that when this training in scientific thinking making distinctions making logical connections when that training occurs it doesn't overpower the intuitive poetic and nonlinear thinking terms have been used for example that there's a difference between magic and science these are two common terms that people have used implying that magic is primitive thinking and science is advanced thinking in point of fact and there's been interesting research done by uh, Tambaya who's an anthropologist he shows that both modes of thinking proceed according to their own logic they have different assumptions about the nature of reality and different assumptions about effects the scientific model is convinced that cause and effect is the explanation for events the magical mode is convinced that contiguity events occurring close to each other explains why they occur neither is superior to the other with that kind of more open uh, democratic if you will approach to thinking we can then talk about children who are raised to both appreciate the linear and the nonlinear, the logical and the intuitive. If we are to have the more open, more comprehensive view of development which Richard Katz proposes, then we will also have to include within it the emotional life of the child. We learn best when we are involved in our learning as whole beings. The act of knowing blends both thinking and feeling, and knowledge without feeling simply doesn't exist. Indeed, I think we can trace much of the anti-intellectual bias in our culture back to the negative feeling with which forced learning has imbued our knowledge. And yet, in both schools and preschools, the emphasis often remains on teaching intellectual skills without regard for the feelings or wishes of the child. Otto Weininger is the chairman of the Early Childhood Section of the Department of Applied Psychology at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. My work has really been an attempt, and continues, I think, to be an attempt to integrate these two 
what some people think of as very um, different areas. For me, they're not different areas at all. I don't think that I can look at a child's development from a strictly cognitive point of view without saying that there is something happening emotionally to that child. And I don't mean emotionally negatively. I mean emotionally just in terms of living. Nor do I think that we can take a child and just talk about the emotional aspects of the child without also trying to involve ourselves in what is the child learning and how is the child learning involved in this emotional situation. Um, for a while now, for a long time, unfortunately, uh, ranging back to the, um, to the 20s, um, the 30s, um, there's really been an attempt to really deal with what is called strict cognitive developmental aspects. So that what we are trying to do is we're trying to present to children specific aspects within the cognitive realm and teach them specifics. So we, we provide them with specific kinds of, of equipment. Um, like in the Montessori school, we might provide them with the golden beads. And we don't permit the child to explore the beads in any kind of constructive or functional way as far as their emotional development would suggest them doing. What we do is we lay out a pattern for them and we say that we want you to do it this way and we want you to count them like this and we want you to number them and we want you to do this in, a very, in this particular kind of structured way. Implying then that what this will do will be to help the child's mathematical developmental skills. We also, for example, in some schools suggest to children that no, when you take um, a ruler you use it strictly as a line guiding device and you don't use it as a sailboat, you don't use it as a bridge, you don't use it as a catapult, you don't use it in any other way which creatively you may be able to devise. So I think that those schools of thought are, would suggest that the cognitive development is away from any of the emotional aspects that the child brings to the learning situation. By trying to separate the cognitive from the emotional, we alienate the child from his learning. But we may also do much more specific kinds of damage. Children mature at very different speeds, and so do their individual abilities. Physical, emotional, intellectual, and perceptual abilities may all develop at markedly different rates. This fact has led the American educators, Raymond and Dorothy Moore, in a book called Better Late Than Early, to propose that we consider something which they call the integrated maturity level. This is the point at which the child's various abilities reach a mature and cooperative level of functioning, and they suggest that it is rarely reached before age eight, and sometimes much later. Before this time, real harm is done by those who try to isolate and force the child's skills. Otto Weininger. If I force this child to learn by insisting that you do this and point out what you're doing wrong, rather than my recognizing that the child is just not ready yet for that, then I think I'm going to turn that child away from something like mathematics. Now, they are doing that in some schools now, where rather than recognizing the emotional aspect of what the child is doing and dealing with, they insist on dealing with certain cognitive skills, and they deal with this in separate parts. They fragment it to the point where the child does not see it as being useful to his whole living, to his whole life. Until the child is emotionally capable, psychologically capable of dealing with these aspects, the child will not learn. And so we have this whole concept of learning problems. 
That's not to say that there are not some learning disabilities which are neuropsychologically based, and we're not talking about those at this point. But so many of the problems, the learning problems that I see in school and that many of my students see in the classroom are as a result of these kind of psychological ineptitudes that the child has not yet been able to grasp and that the educator has not yet been able to recognize as important to deal with. They've traveled on in the cognitive sphere without recognizing that they've left the child miles behind. The splitting of the child, which Otto Weininger sees in schools, also mirrors a division in the field of child study itself. On the whole, it has been the psychoanalysts who have concerned themselves with the child's dreams, fantasies, and deeply felt needs, while the developmental psychologists have considered the child's evolving intellectual abilities. In a recent book, called Intelligence and Adaptation, the psychoanalyst Stanley Greenspan of the National Institute of Mental Health in the U.S. has attempted to overcome this split by presenting a unified perspective in which the insights of both Piaget and psychoanalysis can find a place. Dr. Greenspan suggests that the same types of mental operations may be employed in both the impersonal, problem-solving tasks observed by Piaget and in the emotional domain which psychoanalysis has charted. But he also notes an interesting difference between the two domains in the rate of development. I noticed in watching how kids worked on their emotional world that they seemed very early in life to do things that Piaget would describe only later in development. So that a child, if you asked him to, uh, wanted to see if he had a concept of the family, a kind of classification task, he could identify, a very bright two-and-a-half-year-old could identify all the family members and say who was in the family and who was outside the family, all right? But, but if you gave him, at the same time, an impersonal task to classify objects according to their properties, uh, size, shape, might not be able to do it, and usually couldn't. So that it looked like where there was affect and emotion and uh, strong motivation, uh, uh, an early form of classification could occur uh, in one realm, but not another realm. Now, the same thing would be, in a, give me a simile of a seriation task. I saw youngsters who could uh, talk about different degrees of anger, being mildly angry to a little angry to very angry, you know what I mean? And um, yet, if you ask them to line up sticks according to their length, could not uh, line up from smallest to biggest. Could, could do the, but could give you a verbal description of gradations of anger. So the, the theory then as it came involved was that there's this one structure that's, that's dealing with realms of experience, but that it, for, for metaphorical purposes, I said that there are two boundaries to the structure, a boundary that had more to do with internal emotional life and another that had more to do with sort of external impersonal life, like mathematical problems, and that there was no reason to assume that these two boundaries uh, differentiated or moved to higher levels of organization at exactly the same rate. That for some domains of experience they did and for other domains of experience they didn't. What Stanley Greenspan says here reinforces and extends a point made earlier by Otto Weininger. For young children, the emotional domain is of primary importance and their developing intellectual abilities are applied first to sorting out their feelings. But there need, in fact, be no conflict between these two domains if we allow children to do what comes naturally to them, and that is to play. Play is activity under the control of the child, 
and since it is the child who knows best what his own needs are, it is activity in which he develops both his abilities and his self-respect. Otto Weininger. I think that when the child plays, what they usually do is they, they repeat some activities that they have already known, and they get the feeling that they are being able to be successful. That capacity to be successful allows them to think of themselves as a fairly effective person. It allows them to say, I can do it. It allows them, I think, to say, I can respect myself because I am successful, because I have been able to accomplish something. Now, there is no other activity that will allow the child to do that. When they play, they know what they're doing. The child has the understanding of what kind of goals they're trying to reach. And usually they set their goals in such a way so that they can achieve them. Once they have been achieved, you will also notice that they begin to extend their goals further and further so that they're pushing themselves. We don't need to push them. We just need to set the environment for them. They'll push themselves, but they will push themselves with the feeling that I can respect myself for having been able to accomplish something. I've not, as a teacher, pushed the goal so far away that the child can never reach it or feel that they're ever successful, because I think that there is a degree of self-respect as I begin to feel myself successful. It allows me to achieve a degree of autonomy, because I can now, having had a feeling of success and being somewhat respectful of myself, I can put myself in a position of risk. I can allow myself to be at risk in terms of saying, I don't know it, and I'm going to go on and try and find out about it, and that's a risky position. Listen, a lot of adults can't say, I don't know it, and go on and find out. And I think a lot of adults can't say that because they don't not, neither do they not have success about themselves, but they don't have respect for themselves, nor have they been able to acquire the feeling that I could do this and I could put myself in a position of risk. Well, the playing child can put themselves in the position of risk, and that allows them to explore further of their world. Because play integrates and provides scope, for all of the child's developing abilities. It can also serve the purposes of education. And for young children, it can do so much more effectively than formal teaching. If the adult who is working with children has an understanding of children and of child developmental processes and what the child is all about, then they can begin to elaborate the world of the child by extending it, by adding in certain materials which they see the child will next be able to use. In other words, if the children are playing with tricycles, um, all I have to do to organize them and to help them is to draw a chalk line or two chalk lines on the floor, and then they'll follow the path. I know they will. That's no great trick. Now, if I want to extend it because I see that play is getting stale, all I have to do is put a stop sign there. Now. They'll recognize the shape and the color. They won't recognize the letters necessarily, but some of them will. And some of them will point out that word says stop. They'll all stop when they come to it. That's extending the environment. If I want to extend it more in a particular direction, all I have to do is start to make a cardboard box and say, I think that this will become the gasoline station. Now I've added something else into this play. I'm extending it, I'm elaborating it, I'm not allowing it to stay stale. What I'm doing is I have certain goals as an educator that I want to teach these children, and I'm going to teach them by elaborating the environment, not by telling them now it's time for us to do such and such. We have to learn how to spell the word stop. 
I know these kids will learn the word stop. I know that they will recognize it. And I know that gradually they'll also be able to print it. Otto Weininger proposes that instead of teaching young children, we simply allow them to learn by extending and elaborating their environment. Development, in this view, depends only on the availability of materials and the freedom and security needed to explore them. Burton White, the author of The First Three Years, has observed the same principle at work in the lives of very young children. Children become mobile for the first time at around seven months, most of them. This is when they can first get around on their own, one way or another. Uh, We have objective data that says they are now into the single most dangerous period of early development. Between that time and about two years of age, there are more accidental poisonings and more falls and fractures and so forth than there are before, obviously, and later. And this is fact. There's nothing I can do about it. It's there. The reasons are understandable. The normal reaction of a lot of people is to avoid danger at all costs and to avoid the extra work that's involved and the damage that might happen by confining the child either to a playpen or in a jump seat or in a crib or in a tether in any number of different ways. That particular child-rearing practice, which is widespread, especially among low-income families and not terribly well-educated families, but not exclusive to them, is uh, not usually associated with very good outcomes at three. Very simple. Um, What's more likely to be associated with it is an alter, a modification of the living area to make it more safe and more appropriate for a crawling baby, and the encouragement, actually, of the exploration of the living area by the adult, the encouragement of it, along with a lot of supervision and a lot of participation and a lot of talk. That particular pattern, I'm willing to put money up on and guarantee will ordinarily produce a talented three-year-old. Very young children, exploring their immediate sensory environments, are doing what they both want and need to do. They seek out materials which they can use in their drive for mastery, and there is probably nothing more moving or impressive to a parent than to observe the diligence, the imagination, and the unity of purpose which children bring to this activity, in which work and play remain undivided. The problem comes later, when we begin to teach children knowledge for which they have no use. It is quite likely that reading, writing, and arithmetic will all be introduced to children before their usefulness is at all evident. There are many reasons why this happens. Because we are impatient, because of our belief that the children will only learn if we force them to, but also because, up until very recently, writing and mathematics have simply not been useful skills for a child. In his book Mindstorms, Seymour Papert argues that the advent of small, flexible, and relatively cheap computers for home or classroom has now changed this situation. Mathematics brings out an aspect of the computer because it's able, it allows mathematics for the child to be an instrument for controlling something. For the engineer, mathematics is a way of controlling 
machines, systems. Uh, in the world as it has been before the computer, the kind of mathematics we teach in school, like algebra or arithmetic, doesn't control anything in the life of the child, so it becomes scholastic. It's like learning a dead language. The computer is a technology that can be controlled with that kind of mathematics, so this kind of mathematics becomes something real and live, like a living language for the child. So the child's relationship to the mathematics is totally different, and it can now be learned experimentally without being forced on the child by teachers who say, you learn it or else. Uh, now, that's, that mathematics is the clearest, ex cl clearest example, or maybe the second clearest example. I think the clearest example is the alphabetic language in, for very small children. I think the reason why children learn to talk at such a young age, that is, they acquire the spoken language very early and very easily, whereas the alphabetic language is learned much later, if at all, and only when we impose it on the children. The reason for this could be because writing is more complicated than speaking. Uh, I don't believe that, and one reason why I don't believe it is that we now see three-year-old children mastering keyboards because they can use the keyboard to make a computer do something. In the past, for a three-year-old child, the written language is a totally useless thing. You can't do anything with it. And so it's extremely frustrating for the child who can grab hold of it and can't master it like you master a mud pie by, by, by making it, by using it. And so there again, the computer, because it becomes it's a, such a flexible technology that can be mastered by very simple means, allows knowledge that has been passive and has to be imposed on unwilling recipients becomes something active that can be used in order to make this medium do something. The child is interested in the world, enormously interested in the world as it is, and not only interested in learning about it and collecting facts about it and making some kind of sense of it, but interested and from a very early age in doing something in it. John Holt. There's no such thing as abstract knowledge for a child. The children want to be active, they want to be useful, they want to make a difference, they want to take part in what happens, and as soon as possible. So uh, the idea that some kind of enforced socializing process is necessary in order to to put children into the adult world is an absurdity. They are as, as interested in its social realities as in its physical realities. They want to be in it. It would have been perhaps my only serious objection to my old friend A.S. Neal, that it seemed to me he was trying to create an island for children away from the world, and I'm interested in creating bridges. You could do anything you wanted to at Summerhill except go to London, which was, of course, the most interesting of all things to do. Neal philosophically... I think, felt the world is a pretty ugly place, and the longer I can keep children out of it, the happier and better off they'll be, and this is not my perception at all. Good or bad, there it is. It's all interesting to them. They want to get in it, do things with it. Maybe in time they'll want to change it. And children, in order to do things in that world, will learn whatever they have to learn in order to do it, the idea. You see, the idea of schools is you learn this now so that you can do something later. And this works for a few children who are capable of learning, um, spitting out meaningless information, but it doesn't work for most. 
I think of a, a young woman I know in her, now in her late 20s, who as a child was an absolutely hopeless student. Really, she went to a very good private school, a kind of a place where they don't kick you out. But she, just at the bottom of all of those test scores, and worst of all in arithmetic, couldn't do the simplest kind of addition and subtraction. After she got out of this school, as when she was perhaps 13, 14, she went into a free kind of uh, secondary school where she could do what she wanted. She took up photography, as many children do. This was real photography. They, the children took photographs and printed, uh, developed the film and printed and enlarged and all of this sort of stuff. And all of that needs numbers. Now, the position of the schools, which is on the surface plausible enough, is you have to know numbers in order to do photography, so if you haven't learned the numbers first, you can't do the photography. What actually happened, and actually always happens, is that because she wanted to do the photography, she learned in, I mean, a couple of months the numbers that six, eight, ten years of schooling had not been able to teach her. Children learn best by observing and participating in meaningful activities. John Holt therefore proposes that we should reconsider the virtues of the apprenticeship method of learning, which was once so widespread. All of what we now consider the learned professions, law, medicine, architecture, engineering, and many branches of science, were, were once learned by the apprenticeship method. Our greatest city architects, Louis Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright, never went to architectural school. There were none. Our, the great bridge builders of the 19th century didn't go to engineering school. They, there were none. Everything that we now think has to be learned in a school was at one time learned out of a school in a context of real work, and it seems to be much the best place to learn it. I have long felt this was true, but I was very interested and very much confirmed by meeting a young Englishman just within the last month or so, a brilliant theoretical physicist, working on the far frontier of theoretical quantum physics, which is so abstract and crazy that you can just hardly believe it. And he showed me a paper which we're printing in issue number 29 of our magazine, Growing Without Schooling, in which he says that he believes that the best, prepar the best way in which a 12-year-old who was interested in physics can become a physicist is to leapfrog all that inter all those intervening years of school and begin to work as an apprentice in a laboratory in a institute where people are doing the advanced work. In other words, go right out to the frontier and work with and among the people who are doing the frontier work. He thinks if he had such a young apprentice that he could give that apprentice real problems to solve, that the apprentice could solve. As he says, any big problem often breaks down into a lot of little problems, and it would not be a long time before this 12-year-old would in fact be useful to me, and would more and more begin to think of real work of his own to do. I wouldn't have had the nerve, I think, to propose that the apprenticeship method would work in such a, a highly, as people say, abstract field as that, but he not only believes that it's true, but he and some friends of his are trying to figure out ways in which they can actually do this. It's worth noting that he said of his own academic training as a physicist, 
secondary school, university, graduate school, all those years. All he ever learned was theories which, when he finally got out to the frontier, he found nobody believed anymore. And it was he spent years learning what was, in fact, wrong. Nothing that he ever learned in his academic training was of any use to him in his work. When I asked him, well, where in your schooling did you begin to encounter the ideas or problems which now lie at the center of your work, he said to me, I never did. I picked them up independently in my independent reading. John Holt. It has been my purpose in this program to suggest a theory of knowledge and a practice of education which is more in keeping with the natural learning style of children. Next week, in the final program of the series, I will turn to the social side of this issue by examining the institutions and technologies which now shape the world of the child. On Ideas Tonight, the third program in our four-part series, The World of the Child, prepared and presented by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropolo and technical operations by Lorne Talk. We've prepared a list of books and articles on The World of the Child. For your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Once again, that's Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Geraldine Sherman. I'm Kevin Marsh. A printed transcript of The World of the Child will be available at the end of the series. Send your requests to CBC Transcripts, The World of the Child, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6, enclosing a check or money order payable to CBC Transcripts. Please allow six weeks for delivery. Show.